Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. Today on the show, gotta be one of the top five biggest episodes for me personally, Dwid Van Hellion of the band Integrity is on the show. One of my biggest vocal influences, sonic influences. And, uh, well, someone I've never gotten to really talk to until today. But more on that in a second. First, if you want to get in touch with me, head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. There's also a Facebook page run by my brother and show producer, Tristan Abraham. You can send messages to. You can find us on various forms of social media at turnedoutapunk. Uh, well, actually, actually, I just think that's an Instagram thing that Tristan has set up now. Uh, there's also a Tumblr page, turnedoutapunk.tumblr.com, as well as you can find me on social media, at left for damien And uh, that's it. If you would like to support the show, the best way of doing that is by subscribing to it on your preferred platform, writing a review for it, rating it, telling all your friends about it. Just, Just let people know people. And, uh, of course, this show would not be possible without the loving, kind support of the fine folks at Vans. Vans came aboard this podcast, said, book whoever you want. You know, we trust you to just keep booking this show, and we're just going to make sure you don't have to do it out of your own pocket anymore. So thank you very much to Vans for doing that. Also, Vans flew me out to go to the Warp Tour in Trenton, New Jersey, which was a lot of fun. Only there for a half hour. Saw a simple plan. Had to go home, but, you know, it was a fun half hour at the Warp Tour. And then ride up, you know, let's be honest, as anyone who's gone to the Warp Tour knows, the ride to the Warp Tour was always as much fun, generally, as the Warp Tour itself. Because that's when you had all that anticipation, you know, you're like, oh, we're gonna, we're gonna meet all these bands, we're gonna, we're gonna get on stage and sing Broham and all this kind of stuff, and then, you know, you'd go to the show and it would be different. But so that ride up there was always one of the most thrilling parts of it, talking about music with your friends. I I look back fondly on those rides up to the Warp Tour. <laughs> okay, anyway, I also got to tell you that coming up next, not next week, the, oh no, is it next week now? It is next week now. We are, we are moments away from 77 Montreal. That will be coming to you on July 27th. It is going to be an amazing event. Uh, as we've been kind of like going through the past couple weeks, we've had some of the headliners on the show. We've had Zach from the Rise Against, who will be dominating the main stage, as well as Davey Havoc, 
both of them joining the three-time club on the show who will be playing in AFI for that festival as well. But the night before, Thursday, July 26, at Les Ministres in Montreal, turned out a punk live! Next week I will be announcing the full lineup. So far, all you need to know is, though, that Zach Blair is going to be my co-host, and... I've got huge guests for this thing. I got I got huge guests. Look at the roster for 77 Montreal. Just look at it. You know, you've got Satanic Surfers, you got members of Crass, you've got uh you, you got suicidal tendencies, you got you got me first in the gimme gimme's. Oh, Spike was also recently on the show. Go back and listen to that one in the archive as well. You've got an incredible roster here. DOA, no policy. Trust me, this thing will be stacked. That is at Le Ministre. Get your tickets. Turned out a punk live. Uh, I vowed I'd never do another live show, but what good are promises if you cannot break them? So this is going to be another crazy fun live show. That is once again in Montreal, Thursday, July 26th. Buy your tickets now. You can get your tickets online, and uh, I will see you there. I will be the guy, you know, up there on stage just freaking out, you know, hanging out with my buddy Zach Blair and interviewing some of my heroes. I got I got people coming up on this show that I've never interviewed before, never talked to before. That's going to be why I'm doing this thing, you know, get a chance to kind of, you know, punish some people that I've never gotten to punish. Speaking of which, on to today's show. Today on the show, someone that I could have punished for hours and hours, Dwid from the band Integrity, Sledgehammer, a plethora of other bands. He is someone that has had a undeniable impact on the face of hardcore and punk. There are so many bands from, well, like <laughs> name, name a hardcore band pretty much. And they have in some way been impacted. I'm sure by integrity. They're a band that combined kind of metallic stuff with, with punk stuff. And yeah, one of my favorite bands, I'm sitting in a room, as many of you know, surrounded by records a good chunk of them are Integrity Records. I am a nerd for this band. So this is something that I've wanted to do for a long time. It's been kind of almost happening a few times. It just never happened. So finally, here it is. And this is worth the wait. This was a super fun conversation. Uh, I got to ask Dwight about everything. You know, I got to ask Dwight about... Well, there no, I didn't ask him about everything. There's still so much more to get into for future episodes, but I got to find out so many things that I've always wanted to know. I'm not going to ramble anymore on about this one. Um, I just going to say, sit back, relax, and enjoy Dwid Van Hellion from the band Integrity on Turned Out a Punk. Hey, Dwid, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, it's my pleasure, Damien. Well, as I was just telling you off air, you're you're kind of a big influence on me sonically. I have a, a glorified cover band where I do a, a pale imitation of yourself as a vocalist. And uh, <laughs> uh, so it's a, it's a big thrill to get you on the show finally. Thank you. It's it's nice to be here. I got to start them off the way I start them all off, which is how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Came across it would be... Um... Thrasher magazine mm -hmm. in um, 1984, I think. Uh, I I was into skateboarding, obviously. If I had Thrasher magazine, and they had reviews and and advertisements at the time for for punk uh, and, and metal bands, mm -hmm. and I was uh, 13 years old and uh, quite a 
quite new to all that type of thing. I just uh, moved from Indiana to uh, Kentucky, which was a step up, I guess. And uh, there wasn't a lot of punk scene in uh, in Indiana. And there was a small one in, in Kentucky, in Louisville, Kentucky, where, where I eventually lived. And um, so through that, I, I found out about some bands and then saw kids at school who would have jackets with bands' names written on them and pants they would write on their jeans and write bands' names and things like that. And then you – back then, you didn't have the internet and, and that type of community to, to meet people. So what you would do is you would go to school or you go to the mall or, or whatever and you would see someone with Vans shoes or, like I said, bands' names written on their clothes. There wasn't a lot of merch back then, so a lot of stuff was homemade. Mm-hmm. And then you would go up to that person and, and make friends and things like that. And so that's pretty much how I, I discovered um, punk, I guess. So I came across it through skateboarding and through the advertisements and, and thrash or whatever they were saying uh, were good records. I would give it a gamble with my allowance. Now, the first record that I, that I ended up buying, I went to a record store in Louisville, Kentucky with my father, who's a very uh, conservative religious guy. And he was really not happy that I was into this kind of music or skateboarding or any of that. So when we went into the record store, there was a lot of police in there. And he he basically was like, yeah, I told you so. That's what this is all about. And uh, it happened to be that the Dead Kennedys um, Frankenchrist record had just come out. And the police were in there taking uh, the the dead. (laughs) Um, H.R. Giger was hired by alternative tentacles to to create a poster for that album and the poster was the idea of the poster was for safe sex but Mm -hmm. you know this is punk a punk crowd so you're not going to have some kind of wholesome poster that says hey hey kids let's have some safe sex out there right Uh, he tried to do something that would be that would speak more to the his audience and so what they did was it was um sort of like a brady bunch or like a Several photos that were the same type of photos. Uh, I think it was maybe three across uh, and three down. So um, each each of these these images were of, of a penis going into a vagina, and all of them were infected with sores and disease and looking really uh, disgusting, except for the one in the center square, and that one had a condom on. Uh, the penis had a condom on, and it was a clean... Uh, pair of genitalia in the image and so what they were trying to say was if you're going to have sex have safe sex don't get sick that was it It, that was the message without being grandmotherly and they thought maybe they could reach more people by taking that approach rather than trying to take a sunday school approach Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which the time prc uh, thought was more appropriate and for those who don't know what the pmrc is because you probably have a lot of young listeners PMRC was a Parents Music Resource Council or committee, or I'm not sure what the it last was council. Was the council, and basically they were board housewives of of government officials who decided that they had had enough of this non-savior and they were going to do something, and they just used their husband's resources and put together this crazy uh, lynch mob and went around picking bands picking on certain bands and uh, some of the bands, they really made a lot of damage. Other bands, they sort of skyrocketed their success by 
sort of uh, touting them as the bad boys of the genre. And uh, some of the some of the bands were able to use that uh, that that uh, oppressive strategy of the PMRC to their advantage, and mm-hmm. it worked out pretty well for some of those guys. But uh, yeah, so to make a long story short, which is I'm really dragging this thing out, basically the cops were taking these records, uh, a terrible genre of music, and uh, I went up to the clerk, the kid behind the counter. And uh, I said, yeah, do you have any more of those records in the back? And he said, no, no man, all, the cops took all those. I can't, I don't have any. But I do and it just came in, and uh, it's a double album. Uh, and it was called the Peace War Compilation. Oh, yeah. And what it was is a, it's a double album, and uh, it has band, one track from, from different bands from all over the world. And um, he said, you can get this. It has a book, like a magazine kind of book with artwork. It's got two records instead of one. And uh, and it's great. I think you'll like it. It costs the same price as, as just the, the one that Kennedy's record would have cost you. So I gave the, my allowance to, to the guy and I took that record home and I was blown away. And also Septic Death was on there and uh, uh, Raw Power. Tons of, tons of great bands That's were on amazing. there. And it really... Uh, I was lucky to get that as my first uh, punk record. So it, but I guess it was it's punk and, and maybe hardcore also. That kind of hard hardcore used to be called what that was yeah. back then, <laughs> and then it changed later. So that used to be considered. I guess punk also changed too, right? So I don't know. Maybe my my terminology is a bit dated here. So uh, I, I could be um, I could be referencing something uh, something that's no longer uh, correct. Around these parts, the peace comp will and forever will be the definition of hardcore punk. I've always because that's one of the questions I had for you too was like, how did you first hear Gizem? But that's amazing. That yeah. was the first band, one of the first bands you ever got exposed to. And also, if you've seen the record, what mm-hmm. you'll know, notice about it is it has a, and this also dates me a bit too. But uh, there, there was this big magazine, something uh, the equivalent of Maximum Rock and Roll format, mag, insert magazine kind of thing that had something for all the bands and um yeah the septic death uh that was pusshead pusshead was the singer uh, the artist pusshead was the mm-hmm. singer for septic death and um a lot of people probably know him more for metallica's uh t- t-shirts and artwork but uh back then he was known more for skateboard community uh, like zorlak was a big one for him even thrasher he made sh- made uh, artwork for those guys well he'd also do uh, that column too right like he, What's that? He had the music column in Thrasher too. Yeah, he did. He had the Puss Zone. It was called. Yep. And that also was a big influence for me to know what bands. That's and that's also how you would know that Gizem had more than just that song. I, I thought maybe <laughs> at the time, like I was, you know, I was only thirteen, so I wasn't very worldly. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't even know probably that other countries existed, let alone bands from other countries. <laughs> and uh, so when I heard that, I was like, "Wow, this is totally like from from." from out of this world kind of a thing. And, um, you know, I grew up on a farm, so that was a mind blowing record <laughs> to have. Were you familiar at all with any of the, like the stuff like self-destruct records? I guess it, that started a little bit later, right? So like, did you know, what were some of the Louisville kind of stuff that was happening at that time? I know you're pretty young at this point. Well, Louisville, what was going on there was, um, Maurice. Uh, that was that, that, that band became later, uh, King Horse and, and yeah. Slint. Yeah, yeah. So that, but that was before they were the, those guys. In fact, I got another funny story about punk rock. Is that um, I was in trouble as a kid because I was I was a bad kid. Go figure. And um, 
I wasn't allowed to go to this concert that was coming to play on the street behind me. There was a church uh, that was located on the, like in my backyard, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And they'd rented out this kind of uh, hall where people would have like receptions for weddings, that kind of thing. And uh, the kids had figured out a trick how they could rent that out and, and put on this show. And it was it was Sam Hain, Danzig's band, his second band, and um, and Maurice and some other groups. And uh, I wasn't allowed to go to the show, but it was in my backyard sort of. So I just opened up the window and I could hear the concert happen. So that was my first concert, sort of, from my window, Sam Hain, one of my favorite bands. <laughs> <laughs> and also, didn't Danzig produce that King Horse record when they finally did do that record on Caroline? Yeah, he did. He did. Uh, Caroline put out a record for, for King Horse, um, and, and Danzig produced that. And plus, I did the artwork on the cover. And plus, yeah, to bring it all full circle, I guess maybe that was yeah. the first exposure, too, for Danzig with uh, more. Yeah, and also, I, I got my nickname from Rat, the singer of King Horse, but... Before he was in King Horse, he, he was in uh, Maurice. What about Solution Unknown? Did you ever see that band? No, I don't think so. Or Big Stick? That was another band from Louisville from back, I think a little bit later once again. Um, no, I don't know those guys either. Um, what was? Where, at what point did you uh, move to Cleveland? Well, there was um, – well, I, I can address a little bit of Louisville and then go yeah. to that. Oh, yeah, for point. sure. There was a place called um, – Charlie's Pizzeria that was uh, and I think God I can't remember the names of the streets but there was this one there was this one area where all the kids would hang out and this was a place it was a pizza shop that an old guy had and he would let punk shows happen and let people young people drink beer pitchers of beer without having ID obviously 13 year old kids could buy a pitcher of beer and such and um, <laughs> so I, I met a lot of people from that so maybe these guys that you're talking about I might have met them but i i didn't get to see a lot of concerts because yeah i was 13 so yeah. it wasn't uh wasn't easy for me to go to concerts but uh, around the time i turned 16 my parents relocated uh for their job uh they were for general electric okay. and they were transferred with their job up to cleveland ohio and that's why i i, I relocated to cleveland with my parents well, the reason I'm just I like so kind of like excited about the Louisville stuff is uh, I'm doing da- I'm interviewing David Poggio right now, and it's like uh-huh. had to be broken up over two episodes, and that's of course where he's from. And Solution Unknown was his band, and I okay. guess with some of the guys that would wind up being also later on in Slint as well and stuff. So it's yeah. it's funny to think that like you know you and Dave Poggio and like all these people are once again you know all at these same probably the same shows happening at this pizzeria. Yeah, I mean, I was I would go. To, there wasn't always shows there too. It was like um, like a hangout. You'd have pizza, you'd have beer. There was a skateboard store, a couple of uh, shops down, and it was a scene like it was a place like where you'd have the, the cool scene. You know, every mm-hmm. every town had something like that in the eighties. I think mm-hmm. at least Cleveland and also Louisville had something like that. So, but yeah, I probably drank underage beer with him at some point, <laughs> not knowing who he was or whatever, probably having a, yeah. That's an amazing <laughs> confluence of music history over that underage beer way back when. <laughs> um, where did you kind of like go? What, like what kind of more stuff were you gravitating to off this peace comp? Like, were you trying to find stuff that was more sort of the esoteric Gizem sort of sound? Or are you looking for more so that meat and potatoes, American hardcore sound that's happening? Well, I mean, I was 13, so I, I that was my first record uh, yeah. in that genre. So I wasn't sure what I was looking for. Yeah. I guess what I was looking for was something explosive. 
mm-hmm. and something that was going to change my perspective on, on the world. And I, and I got that with Gizem and Septic Death too, to be honest. And, and, and in a way, Raw Power with the solos. Um, but before that, I listened to a lot of, you know, like, um, like metal records like uh quiet riot and motley crew and, and that kind of and, and also um black sabbath and and zeppelin because that was the heaviest stuff you could get uh on the mainstream circuit i guess you know? yeah that's the over-the-counter heaviness of the time yeah um, but still i mean uh, it's definitely heavy and it holds up but yeah no absolutely i was looking for something more explosive and i guess you know i had heard sex pistols Somehow, I think a friend made a tape of it or something, like, or I heard it at a friend's house. And I, I liked it a bit, but I thought it was a, maybe a little bit too safe. Uh, and I wanted something more um, with more teeth. Mm-hmm. As you kind of got a little bit older, and maybe this happens a little bit later, but what were the bands that you were drawn to lyrically? Because obviously lyrics are you know such a huge thing um, with all the stuff you've made. Like, what were some of the bands that you were kind of finding inspiration from early on that way? Well, that's a tough one. Uh, there wasn't a lot of uh, lyrics. Are, are you asking me, like, lyrics that would, would be similar to mine or, or something like that? Like, like something that would be influential to me as yeah. to writing? Yeah, like, it, it, was there anything even? Not really. I mean, there, uh, this is this is turning out to sound quite pompous. I don't mean it to be. Um mm-hmm. More, I, I was more interested in, in lyrically in, in what writers were doing rather than what um, uh, lyricists were doing. I guess. No, that makes sense. Like, uh, like Rimbaud, for example, was a was a big influence on me for for writing lyrics, mainly because um, I I I don't speak much French at all, but I spoke even less as a child, obviously, <laughs> and. Uh, and reading the translated versions of, of Rimbaud, um, Rimbaud, for those people who don't know who are listening, uh, was a type of a poet who, who would juxtapose words together in ways that would make them more um, exciting and, and, and create new, new, new feelings, new emotions from these words butting up against each other in a unpredictable fashion mm-hmm. and you sort of be able to visually see something uh, very very vibrant very aggressive at least i was when i would read these uh poems because of the strange wording and and the way that the words were were put together and and i think a lot of that might have also come from the fact that the translation was not accurate and you know, like the Bible is also mistranslated, and mm-hmm. and I love mistranslations. It's, it's a big influence on me, mistranslations, I guess. But uh, as far as lyrics that influenced my writing, there wasn't a lot of that because um, I, I don't know. Maybe maybe Ian Curtis from Joy Division, maybe maybe um, maybe Black Sabbath. Were the yeah. Feeders a band that you were? influenced by or any of that Arizona stuff that was kind of happening or was that later? Well, Arizona, we can talk a little bit about Arizona. There's a band called Mighty Sphincter. I guess they would be somehow influential on, on, on me. And, uh, one of my good friends is Doug Clark, uh, from the band and he's, uh, a tormentor and, uh, (laughs) and a friend. (laughs) He's he's quite a character. 
where did that did, did you get introduced to that stuff a little bit later i guess or were you what with sphincter i i got into sphincter when i was about 16 mm-hmm. and what had happened again it was thrasher that had an advertisement for some records and I ordered um, – Oh, because JFA, of course, probably. JFA was on Placebo yeah. Records. I ordered something from JFA and I ordered this uh, this record, Mighty Sphincter. Um, it was either Ghost Walking or it was New Manson Family. I don't remember which one. Yeah. But both of them had these great covers where it's like horror uh, imagery and uh, and vampirism and – and uh, also, you know, Charles Manson, I guess, as well with the, with the Manson family thing. Mm-hmm. And and I was like, wow, this is this is uh, something that that really resonates with me because I I also grew up. My influences were more in in horror movies and comic books and and uh, and weird poetry books and, and weird art books, not as much in the music um, world. And uh, and that's sort of the way that I work is is not as a musician, but more as a collage artist with words, with music, and of course with imagery. So I guess that's kind of where it all stemmed from. Where did you kind of get into like, you know, French poetry and, and, and this sort of stuff so young, like you mentioned, you know, growing up on a farm and having a conservative family, like where did this kind of inclination for this stuff come from or was, where was it introduced to you? Well, uh, from a few sources uh, and and a few different periods of my life, um, my father remarried uh, a woman who worked – my parents divorced. My father remarried a woman and she worked for General Electric and um, she had uh, a more of a – although she's also very religious, she had, uh, I think, a a broader education in the arts – and uh, sometimes she would try to connect with me by, for example, collage art. She she came to me and said, uh, I don't know why they would discuss this at General Electric, but somehow she came home one day from work and said, yeah, at work we were talking about this thing called um, xerography. And it's like you take pre-existing images from the newspaper or from magazines and you cut them up and you place them together and then you use a copy machine, a Xerox machine um, and create new art out of existing art and maybe that would be something for you you know this sort of like stepmom connecting with the the asshole kid kind of a thing yeah that's a cool way to reach out like you know it's like winston smith kind of like the destroy all monsters you know like knowing that that stuff was kind of i'm sure on your radar at this point as like a a young kid into this well when she talked about it it was before that i think wow that's awesome so uh yeah, but you know that stuff dates way back into the early 1900s. You know, mm-hmm. the Dada movement uh, was responsible for for collage uh, long before um, punk, but they were also responsible for punk. I think a lot of the aesthetic and, and the attitude and and um, even even how some of the words are, are put together mm-hmm. was from the Dada movement. I think that was a huge influence on on the pioneers of punk. Yeah, it's almost like there's like twin influences always in punk. There's like this sort of like highbrow intellectual, um, and then there's like sort of this like street yearning too at the same time. And it's like the two constantly intertwined and dueling with each other, it seems. Yeah, it's probably, you know, people who are left out and they feel frustrated because they're left out, maybe because they like to read books more than go to parties and be friendly. And maybe they just don't know how to be friendly. So they're pissed off because they 
can't connect with people. So they say, fuck it. I don't want to connect with people. And they still read books. Maybe mm-hmm. that's what it is. I don't know. I never really put much thought into it. But <laughs> um, What were some of the other early shows you can remember going to, even like, you know, before leaving Kentucky or, or getting to Cleveland? I didn't get to go to a lot of shows until I moved to Cleveland, um, mainly because of my age. Yeah. Uh, as far as Cleveland is concerned, uh, there was a really easy one. Again, these, these concerts seem to just fall into my lap in my backyard, in my front yard. And this story uh, is in my front yard. There was a girl who lived directly across the street from me um, named Kelly Ulrich. And her father had um, had, had a really big uh, garden, backyard uh, type thing with a swimming pool. And he would let her have concerts there whenever she wanted to and she had this concert that had um this would be i think in 87 or 88 and it was um life's blood uh gorilla biscuits uh youth of today project x outface confront um beyond (laughs) and and i think chain of strength maybe also there's a flyer online somewhere I, i might be off or on a couple of those bands, and maybe there's some I forgot. Uh, but th- those kinds of tours would come through often. Uh, wow. To Cleveland. And that was, uh, it was in my front yard, so I just walked across the street. <laughs> <laughs> pretty crazy. That's an amazing, amazing uh, short distance to see a pretty good show. Um, yeah. Where did you, uh, when you get to Cleveland, did you kind of meet kids immediately that were into this music, or did it take you a second to kind of find? You know, I did, but the reason, again, was Kelly... Um, I moved into this uh, suburban neighborhood and I was riding my skateboard on my, down my driveway and I saw a van pull up that had spray paint on the side and it said confront on the side. <laughs> and um, if I remember right, it was a gray van and I think it, it, uh, the spray paint was in, in red maybe. And I was skateboarding down the my driveway and uh, the and this girl who was Kelly or came over and said, Oh, did you just move in across the street? My name is Kelly. And, um, you know, are you into these bands and things like that, that people would, you know, that would be kind of a conversation starter back then. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we became friends and, um, she introduced me to the guys that were over there at that time. Confront originally, I don't know how much you know about confront, if you know anything about them or not. Oh yeah. I'm but, a fan. Um, you're a fan of them. Okay. Oh, absolutely. So, Confront actually uh, had a different singer than than the records uh, than the singer who was on the records. Uh, his name was Jerry Beck, and Jerry uh, was the guy who co- sort of created the band. He did the artwork, uh, the early artwork, and he also did uh, all the lyrics, including the recorded stuff. And um, he ended up he was a really he is a really good uh, artist, a great artist, uh, pen and ink artist, a comic book artist. And he ended up getting a call from Marvel to go up to New York City. And he had a job, and he could do comic books. So he said, guess what, guys? I'm fucking out of here. And he, and he left. And so then they had to find a new singer, and that's when they got the the singer that's on the record. Wow, that's amazing. I, I, I had no idea about the com- Marvel connection there. Um, yeah, he did a lot of comic books. He, he's a really uh, – and he, he has a very uh, meticulous style, a lot of detail in it. I got to check that out. When, when did you kind of – were you straight edge at this point, or did you identify as straight edge? Yeah, I guess I identified as straight edge. Sure. I was also uh, 16. Yeah. So. No, yeah. No, absolutely. Did you kind of like, when did you, like, and there was you... no, there was no Charlie's pizzeria in that neighborhood. <laughs> no. 
<laughs> where did you when did you uh kind of get introduced to some of the more sort of like you know obviously apart from the stuff that was happening across your street but the more sort of youth crew uh stuff that was happening at that time well that's pretty much all that was happening at that time it sort of swallowed up the whole scene mm-hmm. and um it seemed like that at least from my perspective uh you know we were we were all more or less skateboarders, uh, the guys that I knew uh, in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. Uh, Charlie Gariga, he was a skateboarder. He was one of the top skateboarders uh, for, for our area. And uh, Charlie ended up being in a lot of groups. He started out with Outface and uh, with, with Mark Kanupka, who was also a phenomenal skateboarder. And uh, then those guys did Outface – uh, and Frank Cavanaugh was in Outface too, but he was on my skateboard team. He was not as good as uh, Charlie and, and Mark at skateboarding. Mm-hmm. We were sort of the uh, the more relaxed skateboarding team, I guess. And um, so Charlie went on to being in Civ, um, Gorilla Biscuits, I think, at some point too, um, Outface. And now uh, he plays in Judge. And uh, Frank when uh, he played with integrity he, for a while he was one of the first he was in the first lineup of integrity mm-hmm. then he was uh went on into being in um filter which was a more radio friendly band wait you filter like the band hey man nice shot yeah yeah holy shit i had no idea about that one either that's crazy yeah i have a story about that if you want to hear it sure absolutely when we were kids, uh, when I, kids, when I was uh, about eighteen years old, we used to buy sheets of acid every week from this guy named Rich Patrick, and Rich Patrick played guitar for this band that lived, uh, that not lived, but that where the singer worked two floors down from where I lived. I lived in this place called the Film Building, and um, two floors down was a place called Right Track Studios, and there was a guy down there that was uh, working as an intern named Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails. <laughs> yeah. and he was, he didn't need the job for money. He needed the job to learn how to use the machinery, you know, to, to, to the equipment. And, um, Rich Patrick, he's the, the man behind filter. He was a guitar player on the uh, first night. Yeah. Uh, he wasn't a pretty hate machine. That was just Trent. Okay. But, uh, but he he was selling us sheets of acid every every week. <laughs> well, I now it's time for a confession. One of my first uh, punk shows was going to see Filter because Die Cheerleader opened, and we heard Henry Rollins had produced their records, and we thought maybe oh. he was going to be there. So, well, then you saw Frank. Frank was uh, playing bass. Wow, that's amazing. So, yeah. even then, like, who wouldn't figure that that would be my first exposure? to uh, the band that would have such influence on me, even by way of just a past member. Well, Frank played on um, March, March of the Damned, uh, Grace of the Unholy cassette single, or whatever that was, yeah. that red yeah. one. Yeah. yeah. Wow. His That's... name on that was Gerald Francis Cavanaugh, though. He, he had a, a more highfalutin name for that one. But, uh... <laughs> well, he went populous when he went radio rock. Yeah. It was before that, though. He, he got the, the radio thing... Uh, Shortly after that. Okay. No, that's what I meant. Like once he went, he had to go, he had to make it a little more casual. Yeah. I don't know what his name was on the, on the, on the filter records. Yeah. I gotta, Maybe it was also Gerald Francis. I'm not sure. I have to admit, I'm not sitting on any filter CDs to check right now, but uh, what were you kind of into, or did you know about the St. Valentine's record stuff that was happening in Cleveland at that time? 
No, I don't know what that is. Or the uh, like Death of Samantha and the reaction. Oh yeah, yeah, I know, I know who Death of Samantha is. We used to go to a a bar later on uh, at the time of the acid stuff. Uh, yeah, it was. God, I can't remember what it's called. It was right next door to where I lived on Twenty First in Pain, and uh, you would you could go to that bar, and it was it was it became sort of I guess uh, my Charlie's Pizzeria in later years. Because you could go there, Cheetah Chrome would be there, and uh, a lot yeah. of crazy people would be there. And That's awesome. Wow, this is, you know, you thought you were, it, yeah, I was in a band, and we thought, wow, we're on acid, and we we have a band, and we're sitting here with fucking guys from the Dead Boys and stuff. <laughs> we're, we're somebody fucking special, aren't we? I don't even drink, and I would want to sit in a bar with the Dead Boys, so yeah, that's special to me. Cool. <laughs> uh, did Were you familiar with that band Shadow of Fear at all? Yeah, yeah. The guy who was in that band, the guitar player, he owned um, the the records, the record store, sort of, uh, just in Cleveland called Chris's Warped Records. Okay. Chris was the Chris Andrews. He was the guitar player in that band. He was also in Spud Monster, right? Yeah. Later on, he was in Spud Monsters after after Shadow of Fear. Like, was that because, like, obviously, you know, you get, you know, your music has, you know, later on, obviously, like such a dark kind of bent to it were you into the goth stuff that was happening or were you more just like into the more hardcore stuff that was happening at the time yeah i was always into into the goth thing too it, it, simultaneously with the punk i didn't think that it was different yeah i mean i knew that it sounded different but i didn't think that the uh, it was coming from a different place i just thought it was a different type of punk different sound of punk that's kind of unique though at the time right because you're it's really like the beginning of the or like sort of like the beginning of the codification of like what hardcore is and like being a hardcore kid versus being like, like you're saying, like someone who's just into broadly termed punk music that could be any sound. Yeah. I mean, I liked a lot of, I still like a lot of different music and I liked a lot of different music back then too. But back then hardcore, uh, was, was different definition than what it is now. Mm -hmm. Hardcore then meant it was punk and it was heavy metal. And it could be more punk or it could be more heavy metal, but that was what hardcore was. Mm -hmm. Met metallic punk, I guess. So they called it hardcore because it was, I don't know, having more metal in it or something. But then it changed, obviously, like I, like in the in the late 80s, and it changed into um, uh, the youth crew thing. Mm -hmm. And then that became the standard for what was considered hardcore and other things couldn't be anymore. Well, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Like, it seems like you kind of, you know, have always had, like, I, there's so much stuff, you know, that I've been introduced to as far as like noise music or other stuff that you've always kind of repped. And that kind of is a little bit out of the norm of what hardcore has become. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I liked a few hardcore bands, but it, that wasn't my th main thing. And even when Integrity started, it wasn't... Uh, it didn't sound like youth crew bands and it didn't sound like what everyone else was doing at that time. And, um, and believe me, that's, that's nothing to be, uh, patting myself on the back. Everybody hated it because of that. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying it to be like, wow, look at me. I'm a fucking great pioneer. It was, <laughs> it was like, okay, you're in a genre of music. That's like for outcasts. And then you're outcast from that genre of music, even further out. So I was like on a fucking desert island, so to speak. 
because of this shit, you know. Well, yeah, like, but I like that. I don't care. Well, yeah, I wanted like, to do what I wanted to do. Well, and also you're now an you're an accidental pioneer in that way because you, you kind of did spawn, you know, uh, a subgenre. Maybe, yeah. Um, where did integrity or has or how did integrity kind of come together? Uh, well, the name or what? Like everything. Like how did like where like where did that? When did you decide you wanted to do? You know, like oh, a, we were talking about my first band, and then yeah. I got off track, didn't I? So my first band I, uh, was called um, Common Sense, which was a terrible band. Uh, and basically, it was me and a friend of mine, Joe Fortunato. And um, from that, I went to Rhodey uh, with Confront, helping them play, uh, hel- helping Rhodey for them while they played some shows. I think at Pittsburgh in Pittsburgh and maybe um, some other places. And um, on one of those trips, the bass player from Confront lived in Cleveland Heights, and I lived in a city called uh, in a town called Mentor, mm-hmm. which is the suburbs. And uh, in Cleveland Heights is where Aaron Melnick lived. Uh, and eventually, Aaron was also a roadie for uh, for Confront, and he said uh, he said he he wanted to start a band, and one of the guys while we were on a, on a long drive said, well, why don't you guys start a band together? And so we, we formed a band called Die Hard. Aaron was playing bass at the time in that band. Mm-hmm. And, um, before that though, I had a, I don't know why we didn't call it integrity because I, like there's a lot of people who try to take a, a cheap shot at me by saying that I, I had, uh, made t-shirts and promoted integrity before it became, uh, a band, but nowadays, I mean, I, I I will maybe take a little bit of credit as maybe being the first streetwear guy by accident, you know? <laughs> yeah, because that's kind of what I was doing. I, I, you know, but really, what I was doing was I, I wanted to make I wanted to make shirts that I wanted to have a band like that, but I didn't have it ready yet. I didn't know how to do it uh, the way I wanted to do it. But at the same time, I was learning screen printing and learning printmaking at school, and so I was printing all the shirts for the bands. Uh, uh, at, in my house and at school uh, on, the, on the school supplies and, and then it, in turn I was making uh, integrity stuff too but for some reason that band was called Die Hard and that's where the song Judgment Day came from that I wrote that with uh, Scott Stearns Scott Stearns was the guitar player Aaron was the bass player and uh, that was uh, we still play that song mm-hmm. Judgment Day mm-hmm. and that's people cut, like dying, dying Fetus covered it and it's like that's crazy you know <laughs> Yeah. Most people think Dying Fetus wrote the fucking song. <laughs> well, the true no. The true no for sure. But it's funny to think I, I wrote that song when I was 16 years old. And the lyrics are pretty fucking stupid, you know. But it's not, somehow it holds up enough that people can can get some energy when we play it live. So what – and then Die Hard continued on for a minute, right? They did that LP? Die Hard – well, yeah, but that was without me. I wasn't on yeah. that. Uh, Die Hard – went forward uh we we had some songs but it was um it wasn't very focused in my opinion Mm -hmm. and my lyrics and my singing style was uh well what one of the members of the band contacted me when i was in the band and said you know we had a we had a band meeting and we decide your lyrics are too weird. No one's going to like that shit. And you sing too weird. And it just doesn't sound like what everybody else is into right now. 
So we're going to look for somebody else. You, you know, you do your own thing. We're going to do our, our thing without you. I said, okay, no problem. And, uh, then I, by then I knew more about what I wanted to do. And then I formed integrity and that was Frank Kavanaugh or Gerald Francis Kavanaugh mm-hmm. and Derek Green, who was also uh, the singer of Outface. Now he's a singer of Sepultura and uh, Bill Gill. Uh, he works for, um, uh, I think, Taylor Guitars now or something out in, in California. But uh, that was the original lineup. And we got a call because of Walter Schreffels from uh, Gorilla Biscuits and, and too many bands to, to list in this interview, I think. Yeah, very, very good friend <laughs> of the show. Very- <laughs> to list as many bands that Walter's been in with yeah. two hours, three hours to <laughs> list them all. And uh, he, it, what a nice guy and a very yeah. fucking talented guy he is. Yeah. And he was he was on tour and he was in, in Chicago. And uh, Tony Brummel, who had Victory Records, they had two, two seven inches at the time and he came up to... Tony came up to Walter and said, I would like to do the Gorilla Biscuits LP uh, if you'd be interested. And he said, well, you know, I, I have a deal already with Revelation and they're my friends. But I have a friend named Dwid who lives in Cleveland and he has a pretty good band. And maybe you could give him a call and do a record for him. So I got a call out of nowhere. And this is, you know, there was no Internet. So you just yeah. really get a phone call on the wall and you have a cord connected to that phone and everything you know <laughs> it wasn't the kind you have to crank like abraham lincoln or something but you know well was, i remember uh, i remember the yeah. cord days so i had a phone like that and and i lived in like a like the equivalent of a punk house where lots of poor guys that went to concerts and had bands lived together and someone yelled out ah, you have a phone call long distance you better come down so i quickly got the call and uh, i thought it was a prank because we used to prank people a lot. And he said, look, if you think it's a prank, give me your address. I'll send you a check so you can record. And uh, I got a check. So we we made it. I, I was ready to make a demo. And of course, no one had no no one in our, our group of friends had records at that time. Mm-hmm. So word traveled very fast. And Aaron Melnick heard about that and said, oh, well, you know, maybe I could play in it. And uh I'd like to play guitar instead of bass. And luckily enough, this girl who I knew had gotten a, uh, a toy guitar, a JB player. It was called from Toys R Us for Christmas from Santa. And she gave it to me because she also heard I had a record deal. So I said, well, I have a guitar for you. And that's that guitar that he played on all those records. Really? It's a, it's a toy guitar. Yeah, a toy JB guitar, player. yeah. That's- I mean, it's a real guitar, but yeah. it was made... Uh, and toy for toy toy stores, not for music shops. It was a bit smaller scale, mm-hmm. and uh, which helped Aaron with his solos because he could reach uh, further on the fretboard because of the size of the, of the the scale of the guitar. And it's like solid too, like the necks like built into the somewhere. Thing. Yeah, I remember. there was a variation. There was a lot. Of, you could get a higher end ones. You could. I don't remember which one this one was. I remember that reading one, an interview. That one ended up breaking. I think. Oh, that's crazy. Um, so how did that lineup shift happen? Because first of all, that first lineup of integrity, like, wow, that's like a pretty incredible roster of people to start playing in a hardcore band where everyone's gone on to. Um, how did that, you know, transition happen, like, to the to the other lineup, like the lineup that's on the uh, 
the contrast um, of sin, or the, the even the the harder they fall. Tape. Yeah, which was basically the same. I mean, yeah, same I lineup. Think, yeah, yeah. Um, well, Tom Tom Bros from Confront ended up playing bass on the demo and the seven inch, mm-hmm. and Aaron played uh, played guitar. And what had happened was the guys who I mentioned before as being the original lineup. They two of those guys were in the band Outface. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Outface. Or, yeah, absolutely. So Outface had a kind of a different style of music that they were doing. They were um, a bit more bad brains, a bit more uh, quicksand almost, or something. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know if if that and Dag Nasty was a big one with those guys too. I think the quicksand thing might have been a little bit later, but I, I can't recall. But uh, they were more into doing that. And I was more into doing something that was more um, horror and explosive and with teeth again. You know, yeah. I wanted to do the band that I wanted to hear. And I think that they, they had a different uh, different kind of appetite. And where, so, Sorry, go on. No, no, it's okay. Where, where did you find your vocal style? Because like, it, as you say, it is so unique. Um, oh no! I'm not saying it's so unique. Oh no! No, sorry, not you. I'm, I'm saying, saying those I guys can... said it was so bad. That well, I'm, I, well, you know, I, but it is. It is <laughs> definitely unique. Like it is like you know, and I would never say it's bad. Believe me, I've I've aped it on Millennial Rain <laughs> quite extensively. Like, but it is like it's so different, you know. And it's like it, it's almost like uh, you know taking what people were doing, but to a new place. Uh, well. I guess, you know, as far as vocal delivery is concerned, my influences were blues and Van Halen and <laughs> cock rock type stuff. Mm-hmm. James Brown. Uh, if you listen to Those Who Fear Tomorrow, after I tell you this, you're going to maybe hear it a different way. Yeah. But you'll hear a lot of David Lee Roth, James Brown kind of things happening on that record, like the yelling and the ah, and The ad libs, yeah. You know, yeah, like kind of the vamping and also the – yeah, you know, those screams and, and everything that was that was James Brown and David Lee Roth kind of influence. Oh, that's awesome! And it was just things that I liked. I guess it was, you know, it, to quote David Lee Roth, since we're on the topic, David Lee Roth said, "If you're going to have a band, you know, you have to steal things. So the best thing to do is to steal from everybody, and then nobody's going to know that you stole because it's so much that <laughs> they can't process that. <laughs> exactly. And it sounds like you're original." Um, well, where, I guess then like, you know, where, where was the, the, the stealing or the, at least the influence to have like such a defined aesthetic for the band? Like, you know, you mentioned doing the shirts before the band was a, was around, like it's a bad thing, but there's so many great bands that started. No, as, no, I don't think that it's bad, but a lot of people try to use it as a negative to try to denounce my band. And, and, and you know, there's a lot of people who go out of their way to try to say <laughs> negative stuff. Yeah. I, it, it, <laughs> but, like, I would say that's to me is like one of the signs of like. Like there's so many great bands that it started as as an idea before they were a band, you know, like the Vile Tones, like Black Flag, like fuck my band even, <laughs> like, you know, like there's like bands that you know where where you kind of have this sort of aesthetic in mind, not not just graphic aesthetic, visual aesthetic, but like you know overarching aesthetic. Where where did that influence for you come from? Well, yeah, I think that you have to have personality to to what you're creating, and you know that fuses it into into being real instead of just being some kind of one dimensional stick figure kind of thing. Uh, when you have, when you have a backstory for, for this 
when you have a whole world or a whole universe that surrounds it, you have a lot more depth that you can you can dive into with music. If everything's just one dimensional, then you can't really go too far with that. Someone stabbed you in the back, you're mad. You like living on the streets. It's glamorous to be poor. You eat certain things. You're mad that other people don't eat the same fucking menu as you, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And that gets pretty boring really fucking fast, you know. Mm-hmm. So. Where did you, uh, you know, like the record comes out on Victory. Was there a, a fan base at all? Like you said, people had hated, <laughs> hated the band at the beginning. But was there like locally kind of a fan base that forms? Uh, people hated the, we didn't play shows until the record came out. The, really, none at all. Well, till the record was recorded. Okay. Let me let, let me restate that. We had um, we had a record deal, but we had never played any shows. And I had some ideas for songs, and and we put those together. And Aaron wrote some songs, and we made the the demo, and then later seven inch. But uh, we didn't play any shows at that point. And then we were offered to go on open up for Underdog, uh, which is a, a New York hardcore band. Oh yeah, and we played a few shows with them, opening up for them, and those were our first shows. They were out of town shows, and then we played a show uh, on January sixth, whatever, eighty nine or ninety, and um, that was our first show, uh, our first local show. And it was with um, False Hope, Outface, and uh, and us. I think, yeah. How did the uh, relationship with Overkill Records come about? Well, we eventually had uh, trouble with Victory. Some some records were uh, pressed without our knowledge, and they changed some of the the, the cover was changed into green, and we had a. Uh, a dispute with victory about that. And, uh, we, we left the label because of that. And I don't know if we received a letter or if we received a phone call or how, how it came to be, but somehow, uh, Ron Guardipi from overkill records contacted me and asked if I wanted to do a CD. And I said, I don't have a CD player, so I don't really know <laughs> much about that. Yeah. Uh, but I, but I, you know, I thought, well, if we do a CD, then I guess that's it, you know, because no one really does more than one album, you know, that I knew of, in this kind of music. So I said, okay, yeah, we'll we'll do it. And he he didn't uh, think that we, we would really do it, so he flew to Cleveland to oversee it, <laughs> and, and to pay the studio guy himself, thinking that we might have took the money and ran. You know? <laughs> And so he came uh, to the recording studio and we recorded the record, Those for Tomorrow, with him. <laughs> with him standing there. I mean, he, he was sort of like the label guy. And, and the funny thing was the studio that we recorded at was a, was a studio called Mars Recording Studio. Yeah. And before we went there, they had done uh, mostly uh, cover bands, like glam cover bands. Mm-hmm. So when we went to do – I'll go back a little bit to In Contrast of Sin and the demo – when we went to record that there, and the only reason we went there was because it was only thing we could afford, and that um, a lot of the other studios were focused more on 
electronic music. Either it was hip hop or uh, R and B, and um, we figured they wouldn't get us. But because this guy was doing guitar stuff, there was a, a band that we knew called Fatal Charm, and they were a bit of they they did some originals, but they also did a lot of covers. Okay, there was something like Bon Jovi, and uh, they kind of a replacement vibe too, right? Uh, no, they were basically uh, glam. Okay, then I'm thinking of a different Fatal Charm. Go on, sorry. They're they're from Cleveland. Okay, I, maybe, there's probably several. Yeah, Fatal Charm. yeah, not the most unique. This one happened game. to be from from Cleveland. They were a bit like like Bon Jovi kind of cock rock stuff. Okay, and they had recorded a demo with him, and I think that's how we had heard of of Mars. And when we went to him, we said, you know, we're trying to make this kind of music, and they said, he said, why would you want to make that shit? And we said, well, we have money and we have a record deal. Said, a record deal? What do you mean a record deal? He said, yeah, a record. You know, we're going to make a record. And Oh, wow. Really? So then he changed his tune <laughs> real quick. Because it wasn't a, a demo of uh, covering rat songs. Yeah. But, uh, but I love rat too. So. Yeah. Well, the first record's killer. That's for sure. Um, we're, 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 uh, with the Overkill Records, because like Ron, you know, I the only person I kind of like would – liking your voice to a little bit is is ron from brotherhood were you a fan of brotherhood at all no i've never heard brotherhood really yeah dude check him out it's sick like not he's not doing the same thing you're doing vocally at all but like it's uh he's got i would like, say that i sound like motorhead kind of motorhead and Geezum. definitely and, definitely. and howlin wolf definitely I, I can I definitely but i mean it's just far as like someone who's trying to like i don't know like like you said explosive like that's what i've always found about your vocals they're it's oh. an explosive delivery yeah, I've actually never heard it. Um, I just assumed it was like, um, uh, you know, the very straight edge type thing. And I, and I just never had a chance to listen to it. Well, you know, th- that's another band like. I think know. also at the time when I met him, yeah. his records were already out of print or uh, or sold out or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think they only had that like, they had the seven inch and then I think something came out later in Germany, but then they did it as an LP. Um uh. But like you know, you got a confluence again, like of members of Sun in that band and members of the Foo Fighters. So okay, you can't go too wrong with that. You know, <laughs> once again, like that first yeah. integrity lineup went random places. Um, where did you, that record came out? What was the reception like for um, the first LP for those who fear tomorrow when it came out? Uh, only as a CD and a tape too. That's correct. The vinyl didn't come out for a long time. Um, people hated it. People said you can't have solos. People said you can't have lyrics like that. Also, if you have the the first printing of it, possibly the second printing had it too. I don't know. Um, we made a point to put in the liner notes that we didn't give a fuck about what anyone had to say or think about us. And that really pissed everyone off. But, you know, the thing was, and, and you know, that was nothing new. That was something that was just, you know, I like I said earlier, I grew up into this punk hardcore, that other kind of hardcore uh, scene. And so that was kind of the way it was, you know, mm-hmm. like, like if you think about uh, King Horse, you're not going to hear uh, very nice things coming out of Rat's mouth. You know, <laughs> everything is, is uh, either sarcastic or he's he's grouchy or, you know. He, he's he's who he is he's he's an individual he doesn't give a fuck and that's kind of how i grew up that way too and i didn't see it as some kind of marketing tool it was more just like fuck you you know because that's what it was about back then mm-hmm. 
And so I think that helped make people more mad. Uh, whereas if it would have came out maybe five years earlier, people would have been like, saw it as normal, you know, yeah. yeah for that, for that scene. I mean, not normal for, for the mainstream, but normal for the, for the, for the underground scene. Um, w- uh, when did you kind of first meet Pusshead? Like, obviously, you know, he's a, uh, you know, big influence on you through septic death from the very beginning. Uh, but you know, he, you do art with them or he does art with you guys and then the comp appearances and then also, you know, the, uh, the cover seven inch too. What happened was Pusshead, obviously again, there was no internet in the eighties and Pusshead had a, um, a fan club. Mm-hmm. And you could write to him and uh, order from him too, order his records, order shirts and other things. And he would he would always write like these long handwritten letters that were just <laughs> museum quality fucking letters, you know, and in his in his trademark style of writing. And it was just like unbelievable. And, you know, so I would write to him and, and sometimes I would send him things, drawings and and uh voodoo dolls and stuff and um eventually well we're skipping ahead a couple of records here but eventually we did um humanity's the devil uh, record and at that time at that point we we're back on victory and they said what what do you guys want to do for artwork and at that point victory had had some money uh not a lot of money to spend but they had some money to spend whereas before I had to do all the artwork myself because they didn't have any money. And um, I said, well, you know, I'd always love, always dreamed to have Pusshead do the artwork. But I don't think he would do it, but maybe, you know. And so I I was able to contact him. I don't remember how. I wrote him a letter maybe. And then he called me and uh, he said he would be into it and that he remembered me from the fan club. Probably because I have a nickname. Mm. and uh he remembered that and uh when i met him in person was i think either before or after humanity is the devil we were on tour we played in uh berkeley and he came out to uh to meet me not at the show but at a special place that wasn't his house that was in a public (laughs) (laughs) you know so he wouldn't be assassinated but I, i think because he didn't want to be harassed by people you know, yeah. I think he's a pri- he's a private guy. Also, doesn't he? He has he has some inner ear condition, right? Where he can't go to loud shows anymore. I wonder if that was by that. I'm sure, he did. I think he just doesn't want to go there and be punished. Yeah. the whole time, you know. Oh Can yeah. Can you draw this for me for free right now? Here's a napkin. <laughs> you know, shit like that. I'm sure that was going on because at the time he did our um, he did humanity. He was really at the at the I think the the most most prolific of the Metallica designs for the t-shirts and things. I think that was at the, at the period where he was doing tons of that stuff. Well, he also did a rush shirt around then too. Yeah. Um, he was doing a lot of shirts, but, uh, he was, he was really swamped with artwork yeah. and it was, it was quite a, uh, quite a great you know, honor to have him step aside from big paycheck stuff to do, to do our record. And it's one of his like most kind of like unique pieces, you know, was that like you telling him what you kind of wanted or is that what he heard and drew based on the music? I told him I wanted uh, a Braxis mm-hmm. and 
my actual recommendation was something more like the Craig Johnson Zorlak shirt that he did where there's a sort of demon coming out um, with wings and beneath uh, his his clawed feet was this planet, uh, the Earth, and it was sort of exploding. And I thought maybe something like that. I, I don't, you know, I'm not there. I, I would, didn't, who am I to tell Pusset what to draw? Yeah. <laughs> but I said I would like to have uh, an Abraxas uh, symbol. And he said, what is that? And so I sent him some examples. Yeah, well, no, definitely it's like, and it's it's one of the ones that, you know, like it doesn't at first look like, obviously it's a puss head as soon as you look at it, but it's not like, you know, one of the ones you immediately think of. It's just stands out so much on its own. How did that, tr- that seven inch come about? Like the blood book seven inch where it's like a karaoke thing. Yeah. What happened was I had gotten a hold of, um, someone had leaked septic death, uh, outtakes from the studio that didn't have, I think there were tapes that Pusshead might've had himself so he could like practice his vocals on it. Okay. I'm not sure what the story is. That's just me guessing, you know, like but a Walter somehow he, hits kind of thing. It could also just be that he was going in the next day. Yeah. And the guitar player had a, or the drummer or the bass player or whoever had a tape or their buddy had a tape and then they dubbed it for somebody. Mm-hmm. But I had this uh, recording and I said, you know, what would be fun? I love septic death. And Aaron, Aaron Melnick and I were like, oh, let's just record. You play guitar over this. Because uh, I don't think it had guitar. I think it had bass and drums only. So you play the guitar. I'll yell. And then we'll have like septic death karaoke. That'll be crazy. <laughs> and uh, we did that. And uh, we made a seven inch of it. And Pusset thought it was pretty funny. He actually, his, his, when when I explained to him how we did it, he said, "So you're, you're like kind of like rap, <laughs> like you're sampling." I said, "I guess I'm not sure." <laughs> <laughs> and that was his that was his his uh, his comment on it. It's kind of like rap. Uh, it didn't sound like rap, but you know, like sampling and, and putting things over it. That's a, that's a you know that's that's that you know, unique way of looking at it that, you know, yeah. could only come from Pusshead. Um, when, you, how did dark empire, like, I know we're jumping back now in time, but like you guys leave victory. Um, you wind up doing the stuff with overkill, but then you also started dark empire, right? Yeah. I had dark empire while I was on victory because I had learned how to do records through victory. Okay. So victory did our seven inch. And then I was inquisitive and asked, you know, how, how did, how do you do it? Where do you do it at? How does it cost? And things like that. And he, and he told me, so then I said, Oh, I could probably do a record label. And then I did a, a confront seven inch. Yeah. Paydays on the first release. Yeah. There's like, okay, now, now that I've got you on the phone, there's so many questions about this record on the variations that exist for this thing. Um, was there a blue test press and a black test press? Do you remember? Oh boy, that's a tough one. <laughs> I know it's so, uh, so nerdy. These questions. If there was, if there was, it wasn't specified. It wasn't asked, requested by me. Okay. Uh, at that time, it was pressed at United uh, in, in Nashville, and I, when when you make records, then I think that they would just like take whatever they had laying around and throw it in there, and you know, maybe they made blue ones because they had a lot of blue vinyl balls 
Mm -hmm. It's it's one of the coolest seven inches. Like I remember looking for the. But I have no. I'm not. I'm not confirming that the blue one exists. Uh, I don't know. I honestly don't know. To it, I would be lying if I said I didn't hold in my hand a blue one right now because I've. I've well, they, if you look at the matrix, if the matrix matches the other ones, then it's the same. Yeah, it and, does. And the then it, then it must be the same. And it, like I said, I think that you know if you look at, at, at United Records back then, at least they probably changed. So I, I'm not trying to. Give give them negative uh, publicity here, but back then they used to use a lot of car tires in their in their in their vinyl. Okay, and they would um, throw in some car tire parts along with the vinyl balls, and they that's why when you hold it up to the light, you have this sort of like uh, beer colored streaks and stuff like that in them. That's because of car tires being recycled into the records, and uh, they were just you know they they were trying to save money because. You know, nobody really cared. And at that time, CDs were the were the big thing. Vinyl yeah. was dying, so I think they were they were trying to hold on to whatever they could. So they might have just been like, "Yeah, we have these blue balls. Throw them in and make that test press for the guy." I don't know. You know, back to to Dark Empire. Like right from that first record, like like what a cool, like everything about this. The records are cool. Like the the graphic layout. The you know, it's just so outside of what was happening at the time. I went to school for graphic design, and at the same time, I would go to this place called Kinko's. Yes. It was a 24-hour copy place, and I became friendly with the people who worked there, and when they would get new machines, they would they were just guys who worked there. They didn't give a shit. They just wanted a paycheck, and I would I, – I don't sleep very much, mm-hmm. so I would go there at night and, and be like, hey uh, – you know, you got this new Canon color copy machine. Can I look at the manual and mess around with it? Maybe I could learn something I could teach you. And their guy was like, yeah, man, fucking go ahead. I don't want to do that shit. So then he would te- I would teach myself how to do it from the books. And um, I learned a lot. Of, they had a lot of special in-machine in tricks that you can't duplicate now. Uh, and I, I did a lot of things with that, like the – Harder They Fall demo, the cover of that was done. And some of the some of those were color covers, and they were like using this weird built-in effect thing from that. Is that where that the Joker sleeves from. came from? No, the Joker sleeves those came because Tony Brummel was a night manager uh, at a Kinko's in Chicago. Okay. And when we went to Chicago, uh, we played a show there, and he was supposed to have the covers, but the guy. Uh, Gabe from Good and Plenty. Yeah, <laughs> he he had a uh, he worked a day job as a printer, as a print a screen uh, offset printman, and um, he was supposed to do the covers. And he, I think that he might have been doing them when his boss was, you know, not looking or something. Yeah. And I guess he didn't have the opportunity to do it, so we didn't have covers yet. And um, Tony said, Tony Brummel said, Hey, let's go up to Kinko's. I got the keys and uh, we'll go in there and goof around. And, uh, and so I, I said, well, what are we going to use for making these covers? And he said, Oh, I don't know. What do you need? And I said, uh, I guess, you know, give me some comic books or something. At the time he had, um, uh, Batman Arkham Asylum comic, uh, at his house. I said, yeah, let me take this. I know a pretty cool image in that, which was the Joker. And then I had a sketchbook in the van that I, I brought with me and uh, some of the other parts of that uh, 
really ragtag collaged uh, cover were, were taken from copying my sketchbook and then just tearing up pictures and throwing it uh, randomly onto the color copy machine, hitting print. <laughs> and, and then we, we had them nicely cut, and then he stamped them with uh, – uh, he had a bulldog logo and his address. I think it was his house address at the time in Clarendon Hills. Yeah, and he had a yeah. rubber stamp, so he would rubber stamp the back. I think he made five or six, but you know, people are selling them like they're he made five hundred of them. Yeah, no, there's but, definitely but it, quite a few on the internet. <laughs> yeah, that's not; those are fake. Uh, there was like maybe six. I think it was basically everyone in the band: Tony Brummel and one of his friends, or something like that. Who happened to be there too? Was like, hey, can I get one too, guys? <laughs> yeah, sure. And we pressed print, and he had one. It's uh, it's definitely one of the most sought after records, uh, you know, in the discography. That's for sure. Um, but even those confront records, like, do you know how many were pressed overall? No, it's because it's it's not that, a lot. It never it shows a lot. up. It never shows up. Um, it wasn't a lot. Um, they they had broken up at that point anyway. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a dead, dead thing. I don't think I repressed it. Uh, I think I might have done. I think the minimum, maybe five hundred. Okay. And then, it but then, I, but I know that we destroyed like twenty of them. Or I mean, like two hundred of them. And then I had a house that got firebombed, and I probably had a hundred or two hundred there too. So maybe only a hundred of them ever got out. I don't know. You had a house that got firebombed. Yeah. Holy shit! Um, well, that See, people didn't like me. No. No, that's no. That, there's a story to that if you want to hear it. Sure, yeah, absolutely. I lived in a in a bad neighborhood at the time. And this would be a little bit after. Uh, you ever see if if you follow this type of stuff? Do you ever see a video of Integrity playing at the Fantasy Ballroom? And I'm wearing a a bondage mask, and it's like really <laughs> fucking crazy kind of stuff. Yeah, oh, 100 <laughs> percent. Okay, you know that one. Okay, yes. So what happened was earlier that day, we had a. A show we had a, uh, we had a show that night, but earlier that day was I think it was uh, on the weekend, and there was a place a bar down the street from where we lived, and where we lived was you ever see that show Cops? You know, like Bad Boys. Bad oh, of boys. course, yeah. So they have these like sort of like really small houses, and in the and they'd have like normal streets in the front, and in the backyard of all those houses, always like a dirt road. I don't know why. And that's like a sign of the bad neighborhood of, uh, you know, this area. There'd be helicopters over top all the time. It wasn't glamorous. I wasn't happy to be living there. It's just what I was, where I was living. And what happened was we found um, an ad in the paper that was looking for, you know, tenants to rent this place. And we said, you know, we don't care. We'll live there. Whatever. We know it's a bad neighborhood, but we're tough guys. We'll survive. Uh, and again, we were skateboarding guys, so we thought, oh, if we can fall down as much as we can, you know, I'm sure we can handle living in a bad neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And um, so we ended up getting the getting the lease from this place, and we were like, wow, this is not so bad. And the landlord said, yeah, you know, every room, every bedroom has a hot tub. Or not a hot tub, a, a water bed, sorry. A water bed. And, and we said – well, why? And he said, oh, yeah, just the last tenants left them. <laughs> and we thought, oh, that's cool because we were fucking stupid and we were kids. Yeah. And we didn't think about it. So we were like, yeah, we got a fucking – we got water beds 
and you know we live in a bad neighborhood but we got water beds and you know in the early 90s that was a bit prestigious i guess to have that i, I don't know yeah but we you know it was better than what we had which i think we might have been lucky to have a futon that we'd throw on the floor so we had water beds we thought we were really fucking fancy so what had happened was this was a, a neighborhood that was predominantly Puerto Rican uh, families. And we were uh, white guys living in that neighborhood with tattoos. Mm-hmm. So people used to walk by our uh, house. We had like a sidewalk that would cut through those dirt roads and knock on the wi- on the side window. And we'd be like, what the fuck is that about? You know, we'd ignore it, but we, we would wonder. And there was like this kind of like rundown gas station on the corner and you could buy beer out of like the old, old style, like cooler type thing, you know, like a kind of a, uh, a deep freezer thing. So we would go there and buy beer and sit there and it was like zombie Holocaust kind of thing. You know, like you could just be sitting there drinking beer. Cops would drive by. They wouldn't stop. Nobody cared. And we were like, this is kind of great. You know, like, like it's Europe or something. (laughs) And, um, so one day we made friends with a local guy and he says, you know, everybody thinks you're those guys. And we said, "Who? what guys? Yeah, you know, there was some guys who lived in the house before you. So I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be like a haunted house story. This is going to be great. So it turns out that there was white guys who lived in the house before us who sold crack to the, <laughs> to the neighborhood kids and then pimped and whored out all the girls in the neighborhood and that's why they had the water beds. Oh, so fuck. we were like, "Oh fuck," because that <laughs> this was not a good thing that everybody thought we were these guys that had destroyed their families and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And those guys went to jail. That's why the why why the why the house became available. So uh, one day we went to. Uh, there was a bar on the other uh, the other end of the street, and you could buy um, breakfast, a beer, and a shot for like two bucks or something really low, something crazy at the time. And we were like, we would go there every uh, every weekend. And one one day we went to that, and as we were walking back, there's all these fire trucks and cops and stuff. And we're like, wow, something's fucking happening over here. And then it turned out that our house was fucking burnt to the ground. And uh, so someone had kicked in the in the kitchen door in the back and thrown a bottle that had gasoline in it and, and caught the place on fire. Oh, shit. Okay. Well, that explains. Uh, it was kind of funny. So and then um, so then Red Cross came up to us and said, hey, you guys don't have any place to stay. We're going to put you up in this hotel. And because of the location that we were in, they put us up in like a prostitute hotel. They gave us uh, these coupons for about a hundred bucks each at Sears, so we could buy clothing of our choice. Yeah. So we decided. I decided. Okay, I'm going to buy the most ridiculous fucking thing I can find, and I bought like overalls, like denim overalls, and I wore them sometimes at concerts to be uh, funny. So anyways, that same night that my house was burned down, we had had to play that show at the Fantasy. So we, me and my friends got as drunk as we could because we didn't have anything anymore. Yeah. 
and uh, that bondage mask happened to be in the rubble. So I put that on and uh, wallowed around and, uh, and and yelled, and it was kind of like maybe a drunk Roz Williams or something performance. I will never watch that video in the same way ever again. Um, definitely, there's a good story to it. Now. Absolutely, absolutely, an amazing story to it. Uh, with with Dark Empire, to get back to much more mundane kind of stuff with Dark Empire. Was the goal to kind of turn it into like a, a like a full time label for you, or is it just something you want to do kind of part time? No, there was no real goal like that. I, I guess I thought, um, I thought in a very uh, naive way that if I put out records by other bands in my area, things would start to get better, and there'd be more bands, and there'd be more. Um, of a scene, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. It's kind of- I didn't think that I was going to have like, I, you know, at that time, even Revelation wasn't uh, what it what it became, uh, as far as a you know a big label that people had a lot of respect for. People respected it, of course, but it was small stuff. It wasn't like you know where later on these same labels ended up having videos on MTV and you know making a lot of money. Uh, when I, when I was doing that, it, that was not even a possibility. Mm-hmm. It's amazing though. When you look at that dark empire strikes back compilation, uh, oh, there's a story to that too. Oh yeah. Go ahead. So what had happened was because of, um, overkill doing, uh, doing those who fear tomorrow. And then they bought, uh, the rights from, from Ron, uh, Dutch East India. They had, a, oh, let me start again. Dutch East India was a distributor at the time, and they had made what was called a, a P&D, a production and distribution deal with Ron. Yeah. They would basically fund um, the, um, the pressing of the record, the distribution of the record, and all the, all the mundane things that you don't want to do, but they, they would then cut you a check. So you'd be sort of like the label boss, but you wouldn't be um, – you wouldn't have to invest any money. You wouldn't have to hire a staff. You wouldn't have to do these things. And that was sort of how Ron, uh, Ron's overkill, uh, with those for tomorrow at least, was run. But they gave Ron some money, and for not just for our record. I think Ron had several several uh, releases at the time. But they bought him out. <clears throat> so for some reason they called me and said, "Would you like uh, Would you like to do a label like that?" Because I guess. At that time, those for tomorrow what was actually selling well. Mm. So there was a there was a, a strange story with that. I, 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 the story goes all over the place, I guess. But basically, when those for tomorrow came out, everybody fucking hated it, and even uh, Maximum Rock and Roll they they really fucking hated it. And then about a year later, I don't remember who it was. I don't know if it was Tim or who it was that that did a second review. But they said we'd never done a second review of a record before, but we had to we had to do it because we we totally crucified this this record. And upon a second listening, I'm paraphrasing, but upon a second listening, we we feel that this is a pretty important record and uh, and a good record. And I, at that time, a lot of other people I don't know if it was because of Maximum Rock and Roll or if it <laughs> just was because people were changing their interests or I don't know, or we were lucky at the time, but people started to like that, that sound. And they, uh, 
started to buy it too. Now, keep in mind another factor, which is the factor that I, I'm more subscribed to. I mean, I, I like the record. I think it's it's a good record, and we worked really hard to make it a good record. But because of the the production and distribution deal through Dutch East India, there was only Caroline Dutch East India and a couple other guys who had their uh, claws in the malls, mm-hmm. and Dutch East India was one of those guys. So those Fear Tomorrow would be in the mall next to MTV fucking bands. And so if you were accidentally picking up something, you might buy that, you know? Well, like you bought the Peace Comp type thing. Yeah, like that. But this was more like in the mall, like there's Madonna yeah, yeah. And, and, and stuff like that. And this was CDs, and there wasn't a lot of underground guys who were able to have CDs at the time. So mm-hmm. we got pretty lucky in that regard. And I think that somehow that it started to accidentally uh, get bought and then people some people liked it and uh, it went that way so they offered me a my own P&D and so back to Dark Empire Strikes Back what had happened was and and this is a lot further in the future this is uh, 94 I think yeah mid 90s so what had happened was CDs now were not so um such a unicorn it was it was something that you could you could get a cd deal but it wasn't for everybody couldn't do it especially local bands and there was this guy i don't remember what his name i I do remember his name his name was jim clevo he called himself and he was an opportunist and he would go around to bands at concerts at their concerts and say for a thousand dollars if you give me a thousand dollars, I'll put your song as the first song on my compilation CD, and then after that, you can buy copies if you want for this f- amount of money, like ten bucks or whatever. Yeah, and they'll be distributed at the local record stores, and that's it. And so I heard stories of this, and again, my naive see. There's a thing I, I know that you're friends with Dom, so you may know about this uh, disease that I have. I have I have a, a, a pretty a pretty sad ailment that, that I've been fighting off for, for many years and uh, it's called friendliness. And I have this problem where I try to help people out Yeah, and I help people out. And oftentimes what happens is when the help stops, the person I'm helping turns on me because I'm not helping. And then they, they hate me with the venom. And again, with this was a, a similar thing with, with the friendliness affliction where I said, I don't think that it's okay that this guy is exploiting these bands who are fucking busting their ass to make their music, and they want to make their music get heard. And here I am, a fucking asshole who has a P&D deal, and I can get my fucking anything that I, I could put out, anything, and it will be in the mall. Will it sell? I don't know, but I could put out anything, and it will be in the mall. Right next to fucking Jane's Addiction, Madonna... Red Hot Chili Peppers and all that stuff. Yeah. And so I I decided because I'm an asshole also and I have this friendliness problem that I'm going to make a public thing that I'm going to put out a compilation that any band – well, not any band. Like I'm not going to put out like uh, a polka band or a country band. But any band in the underground scene could contact me and we could work out – being on this compilation i'm not going to pay them but they're also not going to pay me it's going to be in the mall 
and it's going to bomb. It's not going to fucking sell shit, but it's going to be out there. Yeah. And it pressed a thousand. And I guess it might have sold a thousand. And that's how that came to be. I mean, if you listen to it, there's a lot of fucking terrible bands on there. But in my in my taste, terrible. I would I would argue with you. I think like that record is low key one of the one of the most interesting comps to come out of hardcore, especially in the nineties. Like, you know, what other comp has mushroom head and, and that was the first mushroom head release ever. Yeah, and, and at the same time, also like the first brainwashed youth release other than the tape. <laughs> yeah, that was quite a feat to 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 sign those guys. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like it's and also I like one of my favorite covers of all time, Ringworm Circle Jerks cover on there is yeah. ridiculous. You, the integrity song that opens it up, you know, Jimson Isolation fucking killer. Like it's I don't know, like there I can see what you're saying. There's some songs that it's got the guns on it too, right? Like it's yeah. got it's it's uh I don't know, like I would love to see that thing get reissued because you can you can listen. <laughs> I don't think it needs to be reissued. I think you can just download it on uh, Spotify on vinyl. We need you. You of anyone to it should know that in 2018, it's all about the vinyl, right? So it's. <laughs> I don't really have much interest in in, in revisiting the Dark Empire uh, vinyl <laughs> world. But thanks for the, thanks for the for 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 the positive words. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, it was okay for what it was. In my opinion, it wasn't all bands that I liked. And what I'm trying to say, I guess, is, yeah, they don't suck, but they were not my – they weren't bands that I was, like, hand-grooming these bands. Like, these are going to be the fucking – these are my favorite bands in the world. It was uh, actually the opposite. It was done to, to defeat this guy who was exploiting the scene. Yeah. But, like, you know, once again, maybe it just speaks to the caliber of bands that were kind of around at the time that – you know, and obviously you were there at the time, so probably have a different relationship to, to all these bands and all this. Well, I mean, a lot of those bands were 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 motivated people. Yeah, and and you know, there wasn't really internet, so to find me to find out about this uh, opportunity, it took it took more of a motivated person to do that. So, so there could be that aspect to it, like that the people who who ended up being on it were more or less the more motivated people in the, in the town. But there was a lot of bands I had no idea existed. Who, who came uh, to, to be on there. Yeah. I, wa- I want to say that uh, one of the bands might have been uh, ex-Defnix guys, too, if I remember right. And there was a lot of weird old guys that came out of out of nowhere to, to be on it, too, if I remember. Yeah, there's like there's some stuff like that I don't, you know, now that I'm looking at the comp in front of me, Bluto's Revenge. That's the one I think was, was a guy from the Defnix. Yeah, that's like one of the ones I wasn't <laughs> that familiar with, but... Even them, like all those bands, like kind of had careers and like were real bands, like yeah, six feet deep, even like you know, and like but these say, were bands that wanted to have a CD out. They just didn't yeah. know how to do it. They didn't know who to ask, how to you know. People thought you know I was lucky. Walter Shruffles was a nice guy. He helped me out and didn't have to. And uh, so yeah, that was a different situation for me. A lot of people didn't have that opportunity, so. Were there any guess, bands you turned down? Like, did you get any ones that you're like, nah, you guys can't make this comp even? Uh, not that I remember, but maybe if it was a band that just absolutely didn't fit the, what would be considered underground, you know? Yeah. Yeah, because it is all But bases. I don't remember getting anybody who was doing like a Whitney Houston sound or, or something, <laughs> uh, you know, or, or Bobby Brown or whatever. I, I don't remember getting something like Belle Biv DeVoe. Well, yeah, because as far as like underground kind of aggressive music, you've got everything from pop punk to 
to grind metal to to like legit kind of like straight up hardcore on there too like yeah. all the bases were covered sorry to me i don't mean to be going on about this comp forever but no no if, if you a, have that's what it's your show had an had a big impact on me with this comp let me tell I'm you i'm surprised when, that it did but you know no one no one ever asks ever has asked me about that compilation before that's what i pride turn out of punk on, on is that like we will talk about things that i hopefully have never been <laughs> broached before and you know, maybe hopefully we'll never be broached I'm not again. sure if that means that people want to hear it, but... That's what I was going to say, you know? <laughs> well, I want to hear it, and that's why okay. I do this thing. Um, uh, sorry, uh, like, not to drone on... Uh, I think there was a band called Blood of Christ on there, maybe, too. And and um, the singer was a good friend of mine, and he would roadie for us. But he was in, like, a... They were, like, a black metal, death metal kind of band. He ended up dying, and... Um, the guitar player, uh, one of the guitar players is uh, the current Ringworm guitar player, uh, Matt Sorg. He was in that band. Oh, yeah. Well, they were, they were on Cephalic Carnage Records, right? Or Cephal- yeah. Cephalic Decay Records. Sorry, that's it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like, it, 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 once again, like, you know. Tom uh, Rojack was the singer. He's a really cool guy. I, there, we played this one show, and he was like a roadie. But by saying roadie, it just meant he was a friend of ours who went out, out on <laughs> On the shows with us, and he he had like long hair, all black, uh, you know, denim jacket and the whole thing, boots, lots of skull rings on, painted his face in, in the corpse paint and everything. <laughs> wow! And would smoke and would smoke cigarettes and just stand on the stage because he didn't know what was happening because he's from like you know the black metal scene. Yeah. So when he would see kids dive, jump on the stage to sing along and or dive. He would think that they were coming on stage to hurt me, and because he was my friend, he was he was protective, and he would punch them in the face, and I'd have to be like, "Don't do that," you know. And he would punch them in the face with a cigarette lit in his fucking hand with skull knuckles. You get a cigarette, you get skull knuckles, and a punch, all for the same price, and it was a bargain. But at the same time, I didn't want him doing that to, to the guys who liked our band, so I had to be like. Stop doing that, you know. But <laughs> it's hard to find a good roadie sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah, well, roadie is a loose word. I mean, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess stage security handler. R- roadie basically for our band just was was defined by, oh, you're our friend. Yeah, you can ride with us. You can be our roadie. So they would say, yeah, I'm the roadie, because at that time, somehow that was a badge of honor to say it to the door guy at a fucking VFW hall that had 50 people in it. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm the roadie. Motorhead wrote a song about my people. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, like, you know, we've all done it. You know, you're saying you wrote it <laughs> yeah, for confront. I wrote it for ruination. Like, we've yeah. all we've all had to pay our, our dues as the roadie first. But Yeah, and I saw it as, as glamorous at the time as well. I mean, so I, I get it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Dwight, I've kept you on the phone for a long time right now. And uh, I could, as I say, punish you forever about stuff. Um, But uh, would you come back at some point in the future for a part two? Sure. Um, Be happy to. This has been the thrill of a lifetime to finally get to talk to you about all things, (laughs) including the Dark Empire Strikes Back compilation. Uh, And I got to say thank you for the massive influence. Well, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you for, for saying that. I hope it didn't uh, bring negative connotations in your life. 
Well, no, believe me, I, I we, we, there's so much more to get to. I didn't even, I didn't even get to talk to you about Blood Book. Like, there's so much more we can talk about. This has uh, been. We amazing. can go if you want. I don't have anything else to do. Well, okay, then maybe they do you want. Can we talk about Blood Book and that fanzine? Because, like, once again, okay, an incredibly influential fanzine. The, the where like a <laughs> lot, but also like you know, put out a lot of huge records. You know, from that fanzine. You know, the Ringworm demo came yeah. out with that you know it's like where did the zine influence for you come from were you like a forced exposure fan or conflict no uh, we thought that uh we could make a magazine that would make people mad <laughs> and like i said before i had friends uh i had made friends at kinko's like straight regular joe friends yeah and they would let me like print things too at night without paying so I, I said, oh, I could probably make a zine. And uh, if I'm going to make a zine, I'm going to make one that's going to make people mad. That was, was it. Was the aesthetic kind of changes? Because, like, you know, it went from, like, one format to another format. Is that dictated by, uh, you know, access to materials through these people at Kinko's? Or is that, like, an influence creatively? I would say... I would like to say creatively, but I'll have to say sarcastically. Okay. Uh, it was more like, hey, we're going to fuck, fuck with people. We're going to make – like there was one where um, uh, a guy who, who was the singer for uh, the H100s, his name is uh, Chris, Chris Erba. Yeah. And we have a, a blood book where there was a centerfold of him, not naked, but I took him to this place called Glamour Shots where they would uh, – were like uh, it was often used by by ladies, older ladies, and sometimes younger girls would go there and they'd have like someone put on the makeup and do this real like eighties kind of look, you know, lots of makeup, big hair, and they even had costumes you could wear, and they would put like a uh, a, a fan on to blow your hair, and they'd take these like exotic photos of you, like from Cosmopolitan magazine or Vogue. This kind of exciting photo, and uh, he—I he, did an interview with him, and I said, you know, what if we were to take you to glamour shots, and we have a centerfold of you, and you could sign it, and that would be funny. And he said, yeah, that sounds like, you know, a good joke. So we did that, and um, because my friends worked at Kinkos, we were able to afford. I mean, I think that adding that poster cost more than what we charged for the fucking bag. <laughs> yeah. but, but, you know, so, but it was a joke thing. It was for, for comedy and for, for provocation. Well, like, yeah, because there's some issues that are, you know, for, by zines. Some didn't have records. No, some didn't have records. Yeah. Some were, you know, like, you know, full, full scape kind of format. Some were like little half size. Some were huge. Yeah. Like the, the one with the kids of Whitney High Split must be like 80, 90 pages. Yeah, and then there, then the one with the the uh, ringworm seven inches is smaller, but it's just like I don't know, it's such a, like a, a brilliant fanzine, and obviously, you know, definitely there to anger some people. Certainly, that's uh, you know kind of unavoidable with that thing, but also well, it was like, pretty much you know tongue in cheek a lot of it, and and joking and sarcasm and provocation. Yeah, that was the main uh, ingredient to to the articles. Well, we wanted to make it prov provoking people. We wanted to make people uh, a little bit mad. And it's also cool because it was, you know, like once again, it's got that music influence. Like that's where I'm exposed to Japanese noise music for the first time, you know, and like, oh. 
and learning about this stuff. Like it once again, you know, in amongst all the sarcasm that was also there, there's also like this, this sort of passing of knowledge. Yeah. I mean, some of the reviews and the interviews I was passionate about uh, some of the bands and then some, sometimes there was stuff that was, you know, jokes yeah. or uh, stupid stuff. One of the best fanzines of all time. Absolutely. Like one, <laughs> one of my, one of my all time. I don't know favorite. if I would agree with that, but thank you. Well, I put it, I put it on the Pantheon up there with like the conflicts and the forced exposures and the uh, researches of the world. So, um, wow. well, thank what, you once again, uh, I've kept you far too long. Dwight, thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, it's my pleasure, Damien. Anytime. Thank you, Dwid, for coming on the show. And as you can hear right there, there's room for many more parts of this one. Many, many more parts. We we just barely got to, you know, we're, we're just barely getting started on this one. We got a lot more to do. So thank you, Dwid, for coming on the show. That was a super fun time. And, uh, well, I guess next week's guest, Dwid kind of already dropped that major hint in this episode. But I'll get to that in a second. Once again, though... I cannot stress enough, please, if you are in the area, head on out to 77 Montreal Festival on July 27th. It will be an incredible time with AFI, Rise Against, Me First and Gimme Gimme, Suicidal Tendencies, Steve, Ignorant, and Paranoid Visions. I love Paranoid Visions. Thank you. That band's amazing. Um, and I'm being serious here. I've got their 7-inch and their 10-inch, and I've got a couple other records by them, too. Uh, there's also Satanic Surfers. There's there's No Policy, DOA. So many incredible bands on that bill. But the night before at Les Ministres in Montreal, Thursday the 26th, turned at a punk live, which will also have a jam-packed bill. Look at that bill and just imagine what I'm going to be able to do the night before with this live turned at a punk event. I'll have merch. Uh, I might even bring records to sell, too. I was kind of thinking, like, oh, geez, I could bring a little little grip of records to, to kind of sell there and, and do some trading. Maybe some people will be there to, to record trade. Maybe we'll do a little swapping. It'd be fun. Fun. It's going to be a good time. It's going to be a good time. And if you're thinking, why the hell would trading records ever be considered a good time? Well, maybe it will be. Maybe it will be your thing. But I know something that will definitely be your thing. Next week on the show, uh, I kind of talked about this in this episode. You know, Dwight kind of dropped the hint, and I dropped the hint. Next week on the show, Dave Pajo from the band Slint, from Papa M, from Zwan, from Solution Unknown. This is a monster of an episode. It's a fun, fun, fun one. He's someone that I've been a big fan of for a long time. Got a chance to talk to him one time about music. Well, punk, of course, way back when. And this, to me, this is the continuation of that conversation. Some 15, 16 years later. So it's a, it's been a while, but <laughs> we catch up. It's awesome to get a chance to talk to him. And so I liked how these ones segued into each other. I had no, you know, idea that that was going to happen. So naturally I had no idea about Dwight and Louisville until this interview. So I learn probably more than anyone from this podcast. You know, I'm just the guy who's just constantly blown away by the stuff, blown away by the connections. Anyway, that's it for this week on the show. Get your tickets for Les Ministres, Turned Out a Punk Alive in Montreal, Thursday, July 26th. Thank you again to everyone at Vans uh, for being so awesome and treating me so well. Uh, thank you to uh, Tristan, Tristan Abraham, my brother, booking the show, you know, putting the show together, putting it up for me. Thank you, buddy. I love you. 
and uh, then the, and, and go out there and sign your organ donor card, please, everyone. Give that gift um, that you know people need. You know, in in the worst of tragedies, sometimes something really wonderful can come out of it. So please, everyone, sign your organ donor card and and give that gift um, as your last gift. <laughs> Terrible way to end the show. Really morbid on that one, but uh, you know that's the reality. Sometimes the reality is a little a little hard to take. You know, Oof. well, it's a bummer way to end the show. Um, I'm going to figure a better way to end the show for next week uh, while still getting that message across. Uh, but that's it. I will see you next week. Go out there and make your own culture. Oh, I got to take the dog for a walk. Bye.